0: faith hear the word of the Lord Second Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 10 Paul says I must go on boasting though there's nothing to be gained by it I will go on divisions and revelations of the Lord I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body I, I don't know God knows and I know that this man was caught up into paradise again whether in the body or out of the body I don't know God knows And he heard things that that cannot be told, which man may not utter, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 3 times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak then I am strong. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask that you would help us to understand what Paul is saying here. We pray that you would give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we might receive the truth to to help us to know how to grow in our faith, to help us to face whatever circumstances are before us, the trials of life and and even the the enemies of the faith that sometimes we're confronted with, we pray, Father, give us more of this grace that he's speaking of. Give us more of this power as we look to Christ by faith alone. We pray in his name alone. Amen. All right, so in 2010, two Christian books hit the marketplace that both described a heavenly vision of two prepubescent boys. That's a big word to say in the United States, temporarily, uh, supposedly died, and they both came back to life. One is called Heaven is for Real. The other one was called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Both copies sold millions in the United States. Uh, as you know, the first book, Heaven is for Real, later was, became a movie and made more, 100 millions of dollars. The other one, uh, a few years later, was admitted to be a fabrication. The entire story was made up. Uh, Sadly, the boy and his mother began to say this for about seven years before the Christian books, book publishers took it off the shelves because they were still making money off of it, which is uh, really not good. Uh, but it's not surprising given the fact that the boy's last name was Malarkey. Um, nevertheless, uh, maybe you've read that, that account. I, do, I, I don't know. Maybe you were encouraged by it, unfortunately. But both, both of these accounts have quite a bit in common. Um, In fact, you could say it was a a decade in which many stories came out of people in the United States having these particular visions of heaven Strangely, there weren't any anywhere else But first there was the 90 minutes in heaven by Don Piper I think it was and then there was 23 minutes in hell by someone else and then a couple others that were based upon these young people being um, having died and and gone to heaven, But, but both accounts in this case Describe heaven as a place of peace and, and joy, peace and love, if you will, which makes sense. Both recount meeting their loved ones in heaven, even if, if someone they hadn't met before. Both also describe some extra-biblical imagery. Uh, for instance, uh, heaven is for real. Jesus is described as riding a rainbow-colored horse. In The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, the devil is described as having moldy teeth and, and hair that's always on fire. Uh, things that you could see a, a kid would perceive in that regard or another, but it might make you think Should I question the veracity of these visions? Uh, we're told to, to test these things are we not uh, But it's it's not just the, the fanciful descriptions that are given in these accounts that might make one suspicious It's also the fact that nothing like this has ever happened before in scripture There's no account of anyone going to heaven and then coming back and telling everyone what they saw So in other words, you have a couple examples of two men who literally went to heaven physically in their bodily form immediately. We think of Enoch and Elijah who went to heaven, but they never came back and told us what they saw, right? You have that. Then in addition to that, there are others who have died and were brought back to life, like those who were brought back to life from the prophets in the Old Testament, some from the apostles of the New, and even from Jesus himself. Now, when they were brought back to life, again, we have no reports of them saying what heaven was like. just doesn't mention that at all. You imagine if it were, they'd have a long tradition, we would have heard those stories. No accounts of their experiences in heaven. On the other hand, there were a few apostles and prophets, a couple of each, who had a grand vision of heaven. In fact, a, a very mystical, mysterious vision of heaven, if you will, in which they're showing us a little bit of what they saw, but not much, just, just a little. But what you'll notice in each of those accounts, they're not reporting that they saw their loved ones. Not to say that your loved ones won't be in heaven. I'm not saying that, but they didn't see their loved ones. They also didn't get a peaceful, easy feeling when they went to heaven. They were just sort of sitting back and enjoying the time in heaven, if you will. No one was sitting in Jesus' lap. No one was playing with the animals or having a big feast or anything of that nature that most of these heaven books today describe. Rather, we have a different mood altogether in which the biblical writers are often seen lying on their face, prostrate before God in fear and in awe of what they're seeing. They're overwhelmed by what they see. They're not immediately comforted, but rather they're discombobulated because it's so scary what they're seeing half the time. Uh, Of course, in in every generation, though, we we have some who have claimed to have grand visions of God, particularly of, of heavenly visions. And, and Paul says this is going to happen in every generation. He actually quotes in Colossians 2 verse 18, he warns the church against people who go on in detail about visions that they've had, who are puffed up without reason by their own sensuous minds, he says. In other words, they're boasting of their visions because they're wanting to say, I have a special relationship with God that the rest of you do not, all right? This is a very common problem, it happens all the time. But these are the types of antagonists that Paul is dealing with in the church. They're claiming to have had special visions of God that get, grant them some sort of authority over the church. In the same way they have been boasting of their pedigree and boasting of their prosperity gospel, they're also boasting of what they've seen to say, wow, look what I've seen. Pay attention to me. Well, where we left, last left off with Paul and what he was speaking of, he had been boasting, trying to compete with them, and their boasting. He, but he was boasting in his weakness, and he's continuing to do that in this particular text. He's, he's leading us to see even more of his weakness, but he does that by showing us something of his vision, if you will. Again, if you remember, um, the Apostle Paul uh, had a direct vision of the resurrected Christ on the way to Damascus. Do you remember this? Uh, he's, he's on his way to persecute Christians. He sees the resurrected Christ and immediately does a 180 and uh, is now preaching the very gospel that at one time he was trying to stomp out. But then Paul has a number of other visions as well. In, in, in fact, um, let me just recount some of them to you. In Acts chapter 16, verse 9, each of these visions are for the sake of building up the church of Christ. Acts 16, verse 9, if you remember, he's in one area of the world preaching I think it's around Troas, and then he gets a a vision of a Macedonian man coming into him in the middle of the night and saying, come over here, preach the gospel to us, basically. And so immediately he leaves and he goes, and that's when he begins to preach in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and all those areas, right? Well, later on in Acts 18, he gets a similar vision. He's now in Corinth, the same place he's writing to these people now, and there he's beginning to face some opposition. The Jews already hate him because he's telling them that They've missed the point of the whole Old Testament that all points to Christ. And yet, uh, the Lord gives them this vision to say, I want you to stay there for a long time, even though it seems like uh, the, the tables are being turned on you. He said, because I know that there are, there are a number of people that are going to come to faith in this town, which obviously the evidence here is in our epistle, right? We, we, we see the evidence of that. And so Paul actually stays in Corinth for a year and a half, and is able to continue to preach the gospel without direct persecution. God protects him uh, in, in that particular occasion. Later on, Acts 23, verse 11, again, he gets another vision. This time he's in Jerusalem. He's already been imprisoned, and he's having to wonder, what should I say before these people? And God gives him a vision, comforting him saying, you're not only going to preach the gospel here, but you're also going to preach it in Rome. So keep speaking boldly in the name of Christ. And so he does, and eventually, as you know, he's transported to Rome as as a prisoner. But then, on the way there, if you remember, there's a shipwreck, right? And so he gets another vision from God in Acts 27, verse 23, again telling him that he is going to stand before Caesar himself, preaching the gospel of Christ. You will make it through this. Keep preaching the gospel. So that's what he does. Now, these are just a few of the visions that Paul had. Probably he had more that he hasn't been shared because we only have one book of Acts, we don't have two or three, you know, in that regard. There's a lot more that happened in Paul's life after this. But it's interesting because Paul doesn't mention any of these visions when he had the chance to boast about the visions that he had versus the visions that these false apostles supposedly had. Instead, he just shares one particular vision, and it's a vision of heaven. It's a, a a great and surpassing great vision is what, the way he describes it. But uh, on, on our first reading of the Scripture, the average person may not realize he's actually talking about himself here because the way he describes it, he says, I, I, want, I, know, I once knew a man, if you will, who had this type of vision. And uh, so you begin to think, well, maybe it's a friend of Paul's who had this vision. But in verse 7, he makes it very plain. He's talking about himself. Um, so he starts out by saying sort of, you know, this friend had a vision, it was great, et cetera, et cetera. But then these horrible things happen to me. So he's talking about the same guy. But it's sort of like, you know, you've heard that expression before. You know, sometimes I might have a a young man uh, who comes to me as a pastor and says, you know, I have a friend who's having this struggle. And the whole time he and I both know it's you, right? (laughs) Right? Well, in the same way, Paul's doing that, but instead of doing it to save face, shame-wise, if you will, that someone has a struggle, he's doing it to keep himself from getting a big head. He's saying, I, I'm not going to tell you it's me, it's, it's it's some person, and he had this great vision, and then he begins to, to go into it. And, and, and as he explains it, he says in verse 2 that he knew this man who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven in paradise. Now, contrary to what the Mormons might teach you, uh, he's not talking about three different kingdoms of heaven. Uh, if you remember, the false prophet Joseph Smith would take different scripture that In fact, he would always take the obscure passages in Scripture that maybe you don't really know what he's saying, and they would make a whole doctrine out of that just to say we got something you you guys don't have, right? Like baptism for the dead. I still don't know what Paul's referring to at the baptism of the dead, but I'm positive it's not what the Mormons are saying it is. But in this particular case, the Mormons were teaching and still teach to this day. There are three different kingdoms. You have what's called the celestial kingdom, which is where all the Mormons go. Who are good Mormons? They go to celestial kingdom. It's a third kingdom of heaven, and then the other uh, people who are believers but who have not fully bought into the Mormon book, the Book of Mormon, if you will, they go to what's called the terrestrial kingdom. So it's sort of a lesser. Uh, version of heaven and then finally there's what's called the celestial kingdom which is where the wicked people go who did not repent of their sins and they're still sort of in heaven but they get some sort of discipline at the same time but it's a much lesser glory of heaven than these other visions so just so you know that's a bunch of hogwash not true not whatsoever all right start with that so what is he saying then it's actually much more simple than that according to the jewish mindset because the scripture refers to heaven in a number of different ways. Like we have words in English that can have different meanings, right? Well, in the Hebrew language, when they would refer to the heavens, sometimes they would refer to the heavens as the place where birds were flying, right? Is this where God lives? Is he somewhere in a cloud that you can go and get to him that way? Sometimes they refer to the heavens as the place where the sun and the moon and the stars are. So again, is he in some planet in outer space? And then sometimes they would refer to what they called the highest heaven. And the highest heaven was God's abode, the place that we would think of today as heaven. So they would refer to as the first level would be the atmosphere, if you will. The second level would be outer space. And the third level would be heaven, the place that can't be seen. That's all he means by that. It's a very common terminology that if you were a Jew, you would know exactly what he's saying. But because we're Gentiles, we're like, what? Third heaven? It's the same heaven. There's only one heaven that God has, and it's the place that he refers to as Paradise, which again is another word that is probably unfamiliar to some, particularly because it's not even a Jewish word. It's not a a word that comes from the Hebrew Scripture, but it's a Persian word. It referred to a walled or uh, 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 basically a a walled garden, a a very pretty place. So when you think of the the Garden of Eden, you would think of paradise, right? Uh, But in this particular concept, it's more figurative in the sense it's where God dwells with man a perfect place. He's referring to the third heaven as paradise, this perfect place where God dwells with man. Now, what Paul says, though, is he says, this man, 14 years ago, went to this place, he says, whether in the body or not, I don't know, only God knows. He says that twice, right? Uh, What does he mean by that? Well, he means that he was in such a, a powerful, ecstatic vision that he lost all sense of his Cognitive facilities, if you will. He's completely in a trance, almost, if you will. But he doesn't know whether he physically, bodily went to heaven. Like, uh, think of it, the Holy Spirit, if you remember in in the book of Acts, the Spirit takes, uh, is it Philip? He takes Philip and then takes him to another town altogether, picks his body up and takes him somewhere. I Don't know how that happens. Doesn't explain all the, the... the details, but somehow the spirit literally takes him and, and takes him somewhere else We think the same thing when jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil Somehow he's being taken to The pinnacle of the temple. He's being taken to see all the cities of the world. Is this happening bodily? Is this happening? Don't know doesn't say when well, the same way paul is saying here I don't know whether it was just a vision in my mind that god had given me or whether it was me being Transported if you will to heaven don't know god knows that's his point but there in heaven he says, he heard things that cannot be told, things which men may not utter. So, so contrary to these super apostles who want to give all these details about things that they supposedly have seen, he's saying, I can't share anything with you what I have seen. It, it can't be explained to you what I have seen. It's, it's beyond uh, what is allowed, if you will. Now, again, we know of one other person in the New Testament who receives a revelation from God in heaven. Again, don't know whether they're physical or whatever it is, but we know John has a revelation of heaven. In fact, he's got a whole book called Revelation, right? But in that case, John was explicitly commanded to convey what he had seen to the church for a specific purpose. In this particular case, Paul had not received a vision to give to the church, but rather had received a vision 14 years ago prior to the writing of this letter. So what was 14 years prior to this? Well, we know it was after his initial call in Damascus, but before his first missionary journey overseas. So in other words, before he goes off on all these missionary journeys and experiences horrible persecution in so many different places, it seems as if the Lord has granted him this heavenly vision to boost his courage that what he's about to face is going to be horrendous, but there is a good reason for all this. God is, is, is helping him to see the future. He's helping him to see the reality of all this, but he's not meant to share it with the rest of us. And so as a result, Paul says he had this great, surpassing vision beyond anything that anyone could even believe, but he's not going to share it with you. So, um, why does he bother to share that he had it at all? <laughs> I had a great vision, but I can't tell you. <laughs> Sounds like a kid, doesn't it? That's not what he means at all. In in fact, the reason why he's sharing that he had a vision was not so that he can compete in boasting with them in terms of his great vision, but rather to continue to boast in his weakness because not of what the vision was that he saw, but rather what the vision led to. He's saying the vision led to more weakness in his life. Look at verse 7. He says, according uh, to to this vision, uh, it kept Paul from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. So again, if the concept of the third heaven is confusing, just wait till we talk about the thorn of the flesh. What is the thorn of the flesh? Does anybody know? Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I don't know if anyone knows for sure what the thorn in the flesh is was. Um, but it, it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, there's what we refer to as systematic theology. Sometimes we refer to practical theology. There's another uh, branch of theology that's referred to as historical theology. It's actually quite fascinating to study it, because what you're doing is you're studying how the church has interpreted passages of Scripture over time. And you shouldn't be surprised to know that sometimes we have interpreted differently today than it was interpreted before, right? So in other words, the vast majority of commentators today would say that the thorn in the flesh was a literal thorn of some kind. I mean, not, not like a piece of wood necessarily stuck in the flesh, but a, a literal thorn in the sense that it had something to do with a bodily ailment of some sort. So he, in, in, in some way or another, he was physically debilitated by a thorn in order to keep him from being conceited. And, and, and most of the people that will use such, um, uh, will, will lean toward this particular interpretation they would talk about first of all of acts chapter 9 so in acts chapter 9 if you remember when he first saw his heavenly vision of christ the resurrected christ what happens he's blinded by it and something like scales fall off his eyes and then later he's able to see but they're they're sort of surmising if you will that maybe the second vision he had because it was even more great more surpassing in glory than the first maybe it caused permanent eye damage and you think well well, that sounds like an interesting theory, but again, they have other scripture to back that up. Galatians 6.11, if you remember at the end of that epistle, actually my small group wouldn't know this because we never got this far. We just quit. That's another, it's for my small group, a personal thing. Anyway, so even though Paul often uses a, a secretary, sometimes called an amanuensis it's a person who's writing down what he dictates. So some of his letters, he admits that someone else's, Is recording this for him but at the end of galatians because it's such a a personal letter of grief for paul That there are people in the church that are tempted to turn away from the gospel altogether He writes at least a portion of the letter in his own handwriting And at the end of it. He says look at what big letters i'm writing (laughs) Which the people that have interpreted it as an eyesight issue for paul are saying he's writing big letters because he can't see Make sense? So is that the thorn in the flesh? I don't know. Others will say it's some other physical debilitation. Again, they would look at Galatians 4.13. There, Paul says to the church um, that when he first went there to preach to the Galatians, he went there because of some bodily ailment. That's why he came to them in the first place. And it was such a trial to him, not only to him, but also to those uh, that were receiving him it says they didn't scorn him or despise him though But they had received him as an angel of god despite the fact that he had this horrible Bodily condition. We don't know what it is it doesn't say But is this what his thorn in the flesh is? Maybe I don't know Now let's go back a little bit in time Go back to the time of reformation because in the time of the reformation you got people like Martin Luther John Calvin You know these guys you heard these names before They both believe that it had nothing to do with a bodily weakness, but rather a temptation of the spirit. Now, why would they think that? Because they're using the word flesh, because the word flesh can have a couple different meanings. It doesn't just mean the body, but it also means the sin nature or the desires for sin, right? So now they're taking the the phrase of the harassment of the messenger of Satan to be the devil is tempting Paul in some way, and that's his thorn in the flesh, right? So, so in this particular case, you could see how he would be humbled by his, his own temptation towards sin. I, sort of, you could sort of think of it this way. Um, you remember King Saul in the Old Testament? Do you remember how sometimes it said the Lord sent him a harmful spirit? I think that's what, John, that's what Martin Luther and John Calvin believed, that somehow God is sending sort of some sort of demonic spirit, if you will, to harass Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. Again, he didn't do it because of a punishment like he would with King Saul, but rather as a preventive nature to keep him from having a big head. Okay? You still with me? You bored yet? But then the early church fathers had a different take altogether. They didn't think that the thorn in the flesh was a thing at all. Rather, they thought it was a person. Now, where are they getting that from? Well, John Chrysostom uh, is a very prominent early church father, He was looking at the Old Testament primarily to help him understand what this thorn-in-the-flesh concept was referring to. Because a number of times in the Old Testament, one instance, I'll show you, Numbers 33-55, there, Moses is speaking to the Canaanites, uh, excuse me, he's speaking to the Israelites about the Canaanites that they have allowed to remain in the land. And he says, for those that you did not take out, but you allowed them to remain, he says, they will become to you like barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. Ah. So for those of you who thought originally there was a physical ailment because of Galatians, and then maybe you thought because it was flesh of the temptation because of the reformers, maybe the early church fathers have it right. Because in this particular case, the Apostle Paul, what's the main thing he's facing right now? In the Church of Corinth. He doesn't mention anything about a physical condition. He doesn't mention anything about temptations, but rather he keeps mentioning his antagonists who hate him, who are continually acting like thorns in his side. Is that what he's talking about? I don't know. But I'd say if I were to lean toward one out of the three, I'd probably lean toward this latter one simply because there's so much evidence of what the thorn might actually be. He could be referring to these super apostles. Maybe they're the thorns, but I don't know for sure. I don't know. So either way, whether it's a physical ailment or a temptation of of, of the flesh, or whether it's a, a, an enemy that, that Paul is, is facing, what we do know is that whatever it was was so debilitating to the Apostle Paul that he begged God to remove it from him. It says three times he pleaded with the Lord to remove this thorn from his side. But according to verse 9, what's God's answer? Essentially, no, I'm not going to remove it. Why? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I'm sure that's exactly what Paul wanted to hear. You know, it's not insignificant, though, that the Lord Jesus Christ also prayed three times, asking God not to remove a thorn in the flesh, but rather to remove the cup of wrath that he was meant to drink. And yet, if you remember, the Lord Jesus also prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done, right? So I don't think it's insignificant that Paul also shares he prays three times in the same way that Jesus has, and yet God does not remove the thorn from him. Now, we understand why God didn't remove the cup of wrath, right? Because Jesus needed to die for us in our sin. It makes perfect sense to us. What doesn't make sense to us is when God allows us to continue to have cups of bitterness and thorns of the flesh and other uh, difficult trials in our life. Um, But the truth of the matter is this. Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer physical ailment rather than being healed. Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer great temptation rather than not being led into the temptation in the first place. Even as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil if you decide to lead us into temptation. So sometimes it is his will to lead us into temptation. In the same way, sometimes it's the Lord's will that we face painful opposition rather than being at peace with all men, or else we would never face this opposition. How do I know that? Because I read the Psalms. Think of it. You read through the Psalms. I started to count them. I didn't, I didn't finish. But I got at least 70 Psalms out of the 150 that I was going through in which David or another person is praying, deliver me from this. Deliver me from that. Help me from my enemies. Help me in my physical weakness. Help me in the midst of my temptation. And yet, seemingly, there's no answer from God. They're continuing to pray and yet they don't find any immediate escape. Any immediate release. Rather, they all are meant to learn something through these trials and circumstances in which somehow for them Christ has to be sufficient. God's grace for them has to be Sufficient. God has to be their refuge. God has to be their strength. God has to be their hiding place. And not just the escape from the circumstances. That seems to be exactly what Paul's saying here in our text. God's priority in our lives is not to deliver us out of all evil things. His priority is not to deliver us out of all pain, all suffering, All temptation, all antagonism, that's not his will. Because God has a greater will in in, in mind for us. And so he purposely not only allows these things to happen, but he's the one who brings them. What does Paul say? Paul says, God brought this thorn to me. Even if it's considered to be an harassment by the devil himself, who brought the devil to harass him? God does. Whether it's a physical ailment in which he's praying to be relieved of that and yet God doesn't and then the devil's tempting him saying God doesn't care for you. Or it's, it's because of some temptation that he's facing in that moment in which the devil is, is hounding him. Or whether it's a person in the flesh who is in opposition to him and yet the devil's working through that person and yet God has brought the evil person. God has brought the temptation. God has brought the physical ailment. To see it any other way. We don't see a purpose in this. We don't see a purpose in the pain. We don't see a purpose in the trial. We don't see a purpose in it because then somehow the devil is ruling over everything. That makes no sense. God is sovereign over the devil. Of course, it takes spiritual power to endure something like that. But we will never increase in that power unless God brings these things. God brings the physical ailment. God brings the temptation. God brings the antagonist so that we learn in our weakness to turn to the right place, to the right person, to learn to trust God's power, not our own, to look to his will, not demand our own, and to learn to wait upon the Lord with patience. So, so, so rather than boasting in his strengths, Paul says he gladly boasts in his weakness so that more of Christ's power may what? Rest upon me, he says. It's interesting he's using that language. uh, The the power resting upon him is the same language that's used in the Old Testament of of the Shekinah glory cloud resting upon the temple. And the same way in the New Testament when it says uh, Jesus tabernacled among us, his, his glory rested in bodily form here on earth. Now Paul's saying that somehow, because of my weakness, more of God's presence is resting upon me. And he's saying, because more of his presence and more of his power rest upon me, I'm actually very glad for my weakness. This seems to be the pattern, though. God... What is, what is Paul saying in in the first letter to the Corinthians? He says God purposely chooses the what, the weak. To shame the strong, right? He wants to use the weak, and then God's glory and power can rest upon the weak to magnify His own name. Uh, what was the passage we read earlier in Judges chapter six? Mark was reading it earlier to us. Why does he choose Gideon? Because he's so strong and mighty. No, he says, Gideon says to God a couple times, uh, so I'm sort of the weakest in my family, and I'm from the weakest clan in my tribe. You could pretty much choose anybody other than me. In fact, I'd be happy if you did. But notice, if you go back to that passage, twice God keeps calling him mighty man of valor. God's not teasing him. He's not making fun of him. He's saying it's because you're weak that my power is going to be displayed in you. I'm going to do awesome things through your weakness. Of course, Gideon doesn't get this at all. At least not in that chapter. Later on, when he's actually taught, uh, he, was, he was told to go gather up a force to go fight against the many knights. He gathers every possible able body that he can find. He's got thirty-five thousand troops. I think it is. And it's way too many, God says. He says, my power is not going to be manifested through this grand army. And so he says, tell tell everybody who's scared or terrified, go home. And so I think it's 22,000 or something, go home, and there's only 10,000 left, something like that. And so Gideon's like, okay, I I guess I can do it with 10,000. And then what does God do? He said, well, it's, it's still too many. And so as a result, he, he makes them go down the water. And if you remember, they're supposed to get water, and they're lapping it like a dog or they're lifting it up to their hands. He's the ones that don't lap it like a dog, they can fight. There's only 300 men left. So he went from 30 some thousand men down to 300 men. Why? Because God's power is displayed in weakness. Well, how many troops are on the other side of the battle? Doesn't actually say. There's no number given. Instead, it just says they covered the fields like locusts. What does that mean? <laughs> they were everywhere. Thousands and thousands of people. You couldn't find a spot of green grass anywhere because they covered the whole thing. And now you've got 300 men that are going up against that. And you have to read the rest of the story if you haven't heard it before. How does God save Israel from seemingly 50,000 people with 300 men? It all has come down to to God's power. So the Apostle Paul is saying he has faced similar odds, if you will, and whether it's through antagonist or through the temptation of the flesh or whether that's through the physical ailment, he says no matter what the circumstances he's faced, he has learned the secret of contentment in the midst of these evil things, right? If we go back to the book of Philippians, right, we know that he says... You know, whether well-fed or hungry, whether abounding or, you know, in adversity, doesn't matter what circumstance I find myself in. He says, I have learned the secret to contentment. And what is that secret? Most people know the verse, they just don't know it's always related to that. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens me in the midst of my weakness. If you want to know how to grow... In the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, you first have to come to the point of weakness so that you look to God for strength. And so Paul says, as a result, I look forward. I boast in these things. I boast in these ailments, these temptations, this opposition. He says, for Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness saying that when I am weak, then I am strong. That sounds like a play on words, you know, something clever, if you will. But it's not just a a, a play on words. Rather, it's Paul's earnest belief, his fundamental conviction in all of life. If you want to know what 2 Corinthians is about, it's this passage, it's this verse. He's been leading us up to this the whole time. He keeps talking about treasures and jars of clay. He keeps talking about being led by a procession of God as people who have been... Defeated by God himself, if you will, to become his people. He keeps talking about his weakness, the weaknesses of of, of God's people. Why? Because it's through the weakness that God's power is put on display. It's through the weakness that we learn to go to God and we receive the grace that's needed in order to grow up in our faith. Um, God is the one who brings the thorns in our lives. You have to know that. Just as he brings the flowers, he brings the thorns He is the one who brings the ailments the temptations the antagonists. He brings all of these things because he has a purpose behind it That we might look to god for everything What does he say? You are my All in all right did we not just sing that you are my strength when I am weak You are my all in all that's what he wants us to learn and so He brings us to this point in different ways at various times in our lives and sometimes through much time in our life that we might receive and learn to receive these things with gladness rather than with grief. Of course, we can learn this reactively, right? How does this start? How does this whole process of growing up in our faith begin? God always starts it. God's the one who brings the thorns, He's the one who brings the antagonism. He brings all of these things. So by having it happen numerous times, we can learn to receive it gladly over time, but it, it takes a while. But we're not meant to receive it just reactively. We're also meant to receive it proactively, right? So again, we, we're, we're taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray in advance before these evil circumstances face us. We're, don't lead us into decision, but if you do, you know, lead us out, etc. But then he says, we're not just praying, hallowed be thy name, that can come, but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, every single day we're praying, Lord, may your will be done today, even though I don't understand it. May your will be done today, even if it conflicts with my will. May your will be done today, even if that means thorns rather than flowers. May your will be done today regardless. May I be your servant. May I be ready to receive whatever it is that you would have for me this day. I mean, it's sort of what I was saying to the youth earlier, right? You're offering your body as a living sacrifice to God, laying down your desires, laying down your demands. Let me trust you for whatever it is that you would have for me this day. And then praying that God would give us the power in the midst of those evil circumstances, give us something good out of that which is evil, giving us grace upon grace. Now, if we don't do that, on the other hand, if we forget the Lord, and we don't begin the day praying, and we don't uh, think about these things at all, we shouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden we're grumbling and complaining whenever something bad happens to us, right? I mean, is that not what we do? Uh, We're practically living like an atheist, saying we're a Christian. We're not going to the Lord and ready for the day, We just take it as it comes, and then you see how we take it. (laughs) We take it so poorly. And so God wants to get us in the habit of offering ourselves to him from the very beginning, offering the day to him, letting him do it with it as he will, that even our trials can be sanctified to us. Now, I'm not saying that this is easy, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy, Uh, There are some of you who have woken up with pain in your body for years. There are some of you who have struggled with the same temptation for years. There are some of you who have constantly been under opposition from one person or another, and God hasn't removed that. For some reason. You think of, uh, we don't face that as much here as in other cultures, but there are Christians in other cultures today, this morning, that woke up and they're in the midst of antagonism by everyone around them in their community every single day. So I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make this uh, uh, sound like something that's just natural to us. It's not. But at the same time, I, I want you to see That God has a purpose in this. He is working this out. He's not a sadist. He doesn't doesn't enjoy inflicting pain on us. He enjoys giving us grace. But to give us grace, sometimes the pain must come first. Then we cry out for more grace. And he eagerly gives it to us. But he knows what he's doing. He, he can work out every evil for our good. And in the end, we have to say, this is the hymn writers, that whatever my God ordains, it's right. It's good. Who am I to say to my maker, why did you do this? Why did you make me this way? Why did you make me endure all this pain and suffering? Paul, Paul offers to us in this passage again the secret of contentment. There's strength to be found in the midst of our weakness. There's grace to be found in the midst of our darkest of days. But will we look to him for that? Or will we turn away from him in anger? There's a purpose and plan behind it. I can't explain to you all the reasons why he does what he does with some of us or why some of us seem to get worse, uh, get the worst of the stick, if you will, than others. I don't understand why Johnny Erickson taught us still in a wheelchair. But I can understand why she loves the Lord Jesus Christ and continues to look to him for his grace. I think if we can come to the same conclusion that a paraplegia can and say, what God has done is right. It's good. Then maybe we'll grow up more quickly in our faith. Let's pray together. Father, I don't, uh, I don't have all the answers, <clears throat> even in counseling as a pastor, when people ask me, why, why has this happened? I, d- I don't know. You alone know. I could say the same thing that Paul says I don't know, but God knows. But I know that you're good, I know that you're just. I know that you're in control of all things. And, Lord, I know that at times you do, in fact, send thorns our way for various reasons, one of which is to keep us from being conceited in our own faith, thinking that we're super spiritual like some have. But, Lord, the question comes down to do I want to be humble or do I want to be strong? (laughs) They're not in opposition to each other, Lord. Teach us your strength through our humility. Help us to wait upon the Lord. Help us to to trust you in whatever you give us. Help us to know that you are our God and that we are your people and that you always do right by us.